0: You're listening to LabNotes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to LabNotes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today we're dusting off our electron microscopes to take a closer look at the Australian nanotechnology sector with some guidance from today's guest, Dr. Dennis Antios. Like many of our guests, Dennis straddles the boundary between research and industry. He is currently an adjunct industry fellow at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, where he is developing smart surfaces from graphene alongside Imagine Intelligent Materials. This work has flowed out of Dennis's extensive expertise in carbon electrode design from a PhD in supercapacitors and battery electrodes to a postdoctoral posting at the VC-backed spin-out Aquahydrax, where he helped develop their flagship technology platform that produces hydrogen fuel from water splitting. Dennis is a Greek-Australian, a sports tragic, and a passionate science communicator. So without further ado, let's dive into some nanotechnology. Dennis, welcome to LabNotes.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on here.
0: Um, So today we're doing a deep dive into nanotechnology, but could you set the scene for us by telling us a bit about your current roles with Swinburne and Imagine?
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. So currently I'm the principal research scientist uh, at Imagine Intelligent Materials. We're essentially a a sensing company that uses graphene. So we have a manufacturing plant in Geelong where we mass-produce graphene, but then we work with companies really to add sensing capability to some sort of problem that, that they have that they will have to get solved. We also have our signal processing team, they're based in Finland. And what we do is we formulate substrates and, and formulations based on graphene that then we'll, we'll integrate onto different surfaces or within materials to make those, if you will, dumb materials or dumb surfaces smart. We can We can then apply signals into those, get signals out. We can digitize things, we can perform data analytics. And we can detect things like pressure or stresses and strains temperature location and we can as i mentioned integrate that into a a wide variety of applications like leak locations in buildings or location monitoring uh, for smart flooring and so forth and specifically my role is to do a lot of the material science work at the lab scale and then we have the rest of our team to really scale it up and develop a lot of the electronics and the algorithms I think you also mentioned our Swinburne, so we have a great partnership with Swinburne where we work on a number of fundamental R&D type projects related around graphene, and this is anything from smart composites to you know, graphene characterization and standardisation.
0: So this work on graphene, it's just the most recent example in a long line of material science projects you've worked on, particularly around carbon electrodes and their applications. Can you tell us a bit more about your academic background and what it means to be working at the nanoscale?
1: So as technology evolves, we want to get better and better materials. You know, more lightweight, can have better performance. And one way that that's being done is is to actually structure the material at the nanoscale. And that's because we start to utilise some of the quantum mechanics of electron transport and spin properties and bonding energies and things. So that really allows us then to improve a material's behaviour, whether that's a mechanical property, you know, an electrical property or a thermal property. So from that, in in my studies, I worked on um, developing electrodes, highly porous carbon-based electrodes. So so these electrodes are, are very, very strong. They conduct electricity very well. And in some instances as well, they can be have a catalytic behavior and do some very uh, important reactions with a much greater yield or you know or efficiencies
0: so across these projects you've been studying nanostructured materials and trying to access quantum effects that occur in the nano world but how do you preserve those interesting properties as you scale systems and reactions up by nine orders of magnitude
1: yeah and that and that's a really great question because when you have these properties so in the case of graphene, so graphene is a 2D material, but it actually has, if you will, you know, three of the bonds in graphene is in one plane, but there's a delocalized set of electrons in the other plane. These delocalized electrons are similar to what would happen in a metal. So now this system, you know, is electrically conductive and thermally conductive, you know, at that nanoscale. But when you mass produce these materials, there's a lot of noise factors and and manufacturing factors that you really need to optimise to make sure you can convert the basic research to these larger scales. And so some of these inputs, you know, temperatures or pressures, certain manufacturing variability, you know, supply chain variability, all these things need to be understood and factored into your chemical or your engineering process that scale it up so it's it's quite a complicated problem and it's a time-consuming problem it takes time to really translate some of these very very cool and exciting materials you know to to materials that can be they can have these properties that can be mass-produced but then converted into the devices and the the widgets that people are trying to do
0: so can we go to the specific example of your phd which was around supercapacitor and battery electrodes Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that research
1: In my PhD, I worked on developing carbon-based electrodes with other additives to make high-performing electrodes. So in in any supercapacitor or or battery type or or more generally uh, energy storage and generation system, you have a substrate uh, and then also there might be some sort of liquid separating those substrates and then that might be closed and sealed in, in some certain way. And on one electrode, you have a reaction and then charge you know, moves across to the other electrode or another reaction happens and you'll get flow of ions across the electrolyte. And so in the case of supercapacitor, you know, we can store electrons through an electric field. We can discharge it to do useful work. You know, in, the, in the case of water splitting, we can break water into uh, hydrogen and oxygen. And then we can use those products for various applications you know hydrogen might be for uses as a fuel you know oxygen for other important chemical reactions or even you know for breathing in cylinders for the hospitals and things and why electrode development is so important is because if you can make the reaction at that electrolyte interface more efficient like you can generate more product um also you know if you can design the electrodes or structure in the way that they're lighter that also improves efficiency and the power to weight weight ratio and things like that so electrochemical engineering and, and electrode engineering is is very very uh, important in a lot of the world's most fundamental reactions so batteries for example are one also for um you know for electrolysis if you have electrodes that can handle a high current carrying capacity you know you can generate more hydrogen and oxygen for, for the same amount of energy you put in so uh, yeah, it's why, you know, ele- electrode and electrode engineering is very, very important, um, especially as we look to uh, to decarbonize the economy and, and, you know, and get more bang for our buck.
0: So you've touched on water splitting and electrolysis a few times there, but I did want to burrow down into that expertise because I know a good chunk of your postdoctoral research has been conducted as part of a university spin out called Aquahydrex. Can you tell us a bit about that technology and your work with that spin out company?
1: Yeah, so without giving the secret sauce away, so you have a lot of the uh, you know, transition elements, uh, and you know, whether it's you know, iron or nickel or cobalt, and, and you, can, you can dope those on certain conductive scaffolds, whether it's stainless steel um, or, or other cheap metals, and you can make high surface area electrodes. You can form them into a device that has electrolyte in there too, and then when you apply a voltage or, or electricity to that system, the electricity will actually split the water, and then you can generate your your hydrogen and, and oxygen. And really, one of the things that we did well at Aquahydrics was we were able to find low cost metal systems and, and scale that up substantially to make electrolyzers that could produce a lot of current and then so a lot of hydrogen, you know, per unit cost, if you will. Yeah, so it's important that when, when you're choosing materials to design these systems, you've got to understand that whatever you do in the lab, there has to be a whole supply chain behind it so you can actually scale up and make sure you, know, you have enough you know, ingredients to build the electrodes at scale.
0: That's an interesting point for sure. I think a lot of research and lab scale work gets done with some pretty exotic materials yep. or with some processes and systems that are very difficult to scale up, very labor-intensive to continue with. Can you tell us, you know, a bit more about the approach that these startup companies and the,
1: the groups you're working with are taking to ensure that the lab results can be scaled? The way to go about that is you've got to make sure you design you know, your experiments in such a way as to factor in the, the scaling up. And in a lot of the, the work that especially material science startups, they use that, you know, that Six Sigma and Lean methodology where, you know, you use things like design of experiments to Gucci methods to really make sure that you're capturing everything when you're uh, doing your, your experiments in your engineering and by everything i mean everything so for a lot of people that are more used to a lab type setting you might have a concentration or you know or a mass or, or a type of metal but when you want to scale things up when you do experiments you have to factor in operator and like humidity and like external temperature and and other noises that you necessarily well you know wouldn't take into account when you're doing those experiments on the small scale so that's why it's super important when when you're trying to make these systems foolproof you you design in these other factors and these other inputs into your experiments so you can understand the outputs so
0: can we talk about Aquahydrics as a company i know it ultimately got backing from the u.s clean tech venture fund true north and is now based in colorado but what were your experiences as an early employee and a researcher within this spin out as it developed a life outside academia?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, my time at Hydrax was, was was fantastic. Originally, we started with, with two of us in the lab making electrodes, trying to prove the water splitting concept. And, and literally, these electrodes you know, were the size of a 20 cent coin. You know, and then within three years we went to like a massive big electrolyzer system so I mean that journey was amazing and, and so so maybe I'll take to the fact that the reason why the company grows is because you, you have all your engineering and your technical milestones and if you hit those it initiates further funding because as you prove things out then you're able to scale it up it works and then you need you know you get more people as you scale up to you go from more from the, the basic science and maybe a TRL level two to three, you know, to four, five, and six, then you need more engineering, you know, as these systems grow, there's no longer just like electrodes that you have to worry about. But especially with electrochemical cells, as you scale them up, there's lots more design that you need. So you need your mechanical engineers, you need electrical engineers, and expertise in plumbing. And and before you know it, you know, you have 30 or 40 employees, you know, after a couple of years, that's sort of how it evolved. And then, you know, after, after a few years, they set up operations in Colorado to further scale up and commence a lot more prototyping because we had achieved uh, a certain scale here which proved out the technology so that was absolutely fascinating to you know, you know be a part of that for three or four years.
0: So after Aquahydrix was set up and kind of self-sustaining in Colorado you returned to Australia and ultimately to Melbourne working at Monash and then your current roles at Swinburne and Imagine. Um, can you tell us about that transition back and kind of About any cultural differences between the technology sector in the us and and what it's like over here
1: yeah so the thing is with colorado uh really a lot of the the main sort of research institutes are based in colorado so things like nrel so the national renewable energy labs and also the national measurements institute but then on top of that is also all the main us air force bases are in colorado so there's a lot of defense companies out there so you know boeing and lockheed martin some other stock space companies as well so you know the science and engineering talent pooling in colorado is phenomenal it's definitely you know a great place for companies like, like aqua hydrax to ultimately you know set up the manufacturing operations and, and really scale up and commercialize now coming coming back to to australia i actually spent a very brief amount of time at Monash University where, where I learned an amazing amount in, in such a short time. But then another opportunity came up to go and, and to have more of a, a, a leadership and, and more of a, or an R&D slash bit more management type role with Imagine. Uh, based here in Melbourne and, and running some of our projects here. So then I took up that opportunity and that's where I am today.
0: So great. I mean, that that's brought us full circle and, and would love to talk a little bit more about graphene sensing. Can, can you walk us through a few of your kind of use cases and the, the systems that are being created with with graphene?
1: Yeah, so in a lot of literature, you might see graphene as part of the matrix of a material, and that's a lot harder to do like in, in composites and things. But specifically at, at Imagine, we've developed almost uh, graphene-sensing skins that, that we can integrate with a whole bunch of substrates. So whether it's concrete or wood, textiles and uh, polymers just to name a few but then we have also developed the electronics behind that so we can connect to that edge and then we can you know send signals in you know the substrate can interact with its environment things can change it might be a temperature or pressure as I mentioned before and then you get a signal out and then you've got to interpret that data and and the funny thing is anytime you have a new material it, it speaks its own language so part of the challenge is really understanding the raw signals that these systems generate and making sense of them and, and, and what it's telling you. So it's, it's quite fascinating, actually. It's like learning a new language.
0: And so the this kind of signals interpretation and the, the systems that go into that are really a key part in applying any of these materials in a, in a practical real world sense.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. So... The signal processing and the development of of the algorithms on top of that is key because I mean, like in science, you know, it's one thing to have a model and data, but you know, what does that data mean? Because really rubbish in equals rubbish out. So so you need to really, you know, understand your system and, and make sure that's what you're proposing, you know, has a physical reality behind it. Otherwise, you know, you can't interpret anything, and that takes time, and that takes a lot of engineering and experimentation, building prototypes, testing responses. Uh, so, for example, we have like a smart floor where the team has developed some fall detection, and literally your fall signature, or your fall spectrum is different to say normal movements, and then you got to then you know take those learnings, and then you can build algorithms on top of that, and it's yeah, fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating.
0: So I know you attend a lot of conferences and industry engagement events that expose you to the Australian nanotechnology sector more broadly. Could you give us a sense of what that landscape is like in Australia?
1: Yes yeah, so I'll definitely will say one thing: the material science and engineering done in Australia like, is second to none. I think like where we get let down, and not really let down, it's just because size of markets. So, The US venture capital industry is a lot more developed and the markets are a lot bigger. So there's obviously a lot more people willing to take risk on startups and things, but Australia actually punches above its weight amazingly well in terms of the R&D and even a lot of the prototyping and, and things like that that's done here. So so really right now, Australia is developing some great graphene-based industries. So companies like like Ionic Industries and and other startups looking at filtration of water using graphene, you know, soil remediation technologies and and like lubricants and things like that. Uh, But also I know... There's a lot of companies too, you know, in that hydrogen space and the clean tech space. So really looking at trying to scale up hydrogen technologies as well, uh, and, and and other clean technologies like uh, battery companies and and um, even like microgrid companies. So the ecosystem is quite strong and probably doesn't get enough recognition.
0: So I guess as someone who's experienced that journey from fundamental research to uh, startup and and VC backed company. Do you think there's some ways that Australia could coax more venture capital and funding and, and support into that fundamental research translation pipeline?
1: I'm actually quite optimistic because I think there's been there's been a switch maybe over the last five or 10 years about, you know, more requirements with academia to work with industry. And, and I think that's happening to get more commercialization outcomes. You know, it, it does take time, whether that's five or 10 years, I'm not too sure about. So I think one thing people have to understand is, I know people always talk about the USA and Europe, but a lot of their R&D and their, if you will, interdependency with, with industry and really promoting commercialisation was pushed because of World War II, where they really had to fund a lot of R&D to develop the military war machine. So I think Australia right now is doing a good job in it, and it takes time to understand that you know R&D has lots of potential benefit. But I think Australia is actually getting there. When you're working on the on the event horizon of knowledge or doing hard and new things, like there's no answers in the back of a textbook, your returns and your time from development to prototyping to a minimum viable product, it does take time.
0: And you think just that risk appetite and the, the funding for what will always be a, a long and arduous journey is maybe still in a stage of growth in Australia?
1: Yeah, but I think people are realising that there's benefits here. And you'll see that, that people with more longer term strategies are, are actually starting to uh, develop venture funds and things like that here. and Or even other venture funds worldwide allocating more capital here. I think it's happening. But one thing that you do need, you do need some successful companies, whether it's in IT or engineering or in science, to start to pop up. And then that gives you more credibility. And then it's like a feedback loop as well you know, and, and there's a lot of those coming through now. Look, I mean, I know in IT people have heard of uh, Atlassian and things like that, but there's a great company in Geelong called Quickstep, which manufactures composites, you know, for the Joint Strike Fighter, companies like that, that are, that, that are growing and giving, a, you know, Australia a really good name.
0: Well, great, Dennis. Thanks for that perspective. Um, we've got one last question that I ask all my guests as to whether you've got a book that you're reading or book recommendations for the audience.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. So so normally I tend to jump around from book to book. I normally don't read a book from page one to right to the end. I'll jump in between. I'll go to other books. But a book I just read recently that I really enjoyed is by Dale Carnegie called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it was actually written um, about 100 years ago. Uh, but, you know, it's more relevant than ever. And it's a fantastic book.
0: A classic, Dennis. Thanks for that recommendation. And thanks for joining us on the LabNote
1: podcast, Talking Nanotechnology. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for the great job that you're doing uh, with your podcast.
0: Well, that's all we can fit into LabNotes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. LabNotes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Renny Digital find links to both of those organisations, along with our guest's biography, the papers we discuss, and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.